Beloved, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. And, and before, we, before I read the text this morning, I just want to say a couple of things. One is, um, thank you to those that came out yesterday to pray at... Um, to pray across from the Planned Parenthood Pregnancy Center. I was talking to Abby Rock while we were there. This is pretty remarkable. So we've been praying and fasting this week. And um, ordinarily, the, uh, the Planned Parenthood uh, facility is open sort of Monday through Friday and Saturdays by appointment, right? And usually, for the last you know, several months, it's been open on Saturdays. Well, this last Saturday, it wasn't open because there were zero appointments at uh, Planned Parenthood. And I just thought that that was pretty remarkable. And something that needed to be shared with you because, you know what? We need to be very earnest and deliberate in, uh, in, our, in our prayer, our focused prayer um, regarding abortion in this country. And, and, you know, be invested and involved in the ways that we can. And there are plenty of ways. If you weren't able to be here yesterday, um, I would just recommend that you go to Love Life. I think it's .org, isn't it? And just see the ways that you can be involved. Um, but again, thank you to those that were there. Let's stand together. I want us to read from Romans chapter 12. And again, we're going to read beginning from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 all the way through to, to the verse, the text that we're looking at this morning. And I want you to think and consider, um, you know, just the order in the nature of these commands that Paul is giving to us in this text. They don't come out of left field. They're not something that he's just, you know, working up on his own. These are the marks that should be evident in somebody who's truly been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what your life should look like. This isn't for the super-Christian like John was praying. This isn't for, you know, the person that's really feeling it that day. This is for all of us who profess to be saved by the blood of Christ. So let's read it. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I think sometimes, Lord, when we approach Your Word, and especially a series of commands like this, we can often divorce these commands from the heart of the Gospel. Help us not to do that today. 
Help us to realize that these commands, these exhortations, they come from the reality that, Lord, we're no longer what we once were and that we've been bought with a price and that we belong to you. And so, therefore, we are to glorify you in our bodies. I'm thankful to you, Lord God, that you care about us and you care about how we walk that we would indeed walk worthy of the gospel that we have received, that you desire to see your life in us bear fruit in us. Thank you for that. Thank you that, Lord God, you have given to us your holy word to the apostles to speak directly to our souls and to call us, Lord God, out of, out of just a, 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 an a, a obsession with ourselves to an obsession with you. Lord, help us to realize, too, that Father, as we remain faithful, as we seek to be more and more faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, to you, in all that we do, the Father God, we are going to increasingly be at odds with the world that doesn't know you. And we're going to be marked and we're going to be distinct. And there's a lot that comes of that. Father, I pray that as we consider your word this morning, all of our excuses and defenses would be done away with. I pray, Father God, that we would see that it is indeed not just a good idea, but it is your command, Lord God, that we would not be slothful in zeal, that we would be fervent in spirit, and that we would serve you with a whole heart. I pray, Lord God, that you would just arrest our souls this morning. Make us, Lord God, to have ears to hear and an earnest desire to obey. I pray that you would give me grace, fill me with your Holy Spirit, empty me of myself. Let me speak these words that I'm speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the power of my own flesh. Let me be a servant in your hands for your praise, for the praise of your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But I want you to think with me for a moment about what we're looking at here in Romans chapter 12, right? The heart of what we've been studying here in depth now for several weeks. Paul's point from the very beginning of Romans chapter 12 is that the gospel of grace ought to have a visible, a a tangible effect in our lives. Isn't that true? That like, if you're a Christian, there ought to be some very serious and, 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 and obvious marks that you are no longer a member of fallen humanity that is cursed and is on its way to destruction, but there ought to be something that is intriguingly and attractive and attractively different about you right he says in second corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 you know these words therefore if anyone is in christ right he is what a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come right the new has come and there's a reason why it's because becoming a christian is something that is radical in nature. Now, I know that we live in a world that has reduced becoming a Christian to a series of, you know, connect the dots or, you know, say these words or make these promises. But you know what? All that, that, that easy believism has, has just, you know, shown us, has, has proven just how weak it really is. When we look at our world today and we see churches continuously compromising on the Word of God, but they profess Jesus. There's something radical that takes place when anyone gets saved, right? They're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's no small thing, right? You go from death into life in an instant. 
Right? You are, you see the reality of your sinful depravity. You see your sinfulness in a way that you never saw it before. You are brought by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God into conviction over your sin and your rebellion against the Lord. You confess and, and you repent of your sins and you are led to faith in Christ and His death, His resurrection, and you receive the forgiveness of sins and you're imputed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Real and true salvation, right? And that's got to lead to real and tangible transformation in our lives. We can't remain the way that we once were. We just can't do it, right? That's the underlying premise of this entire section. If you don't understand that all of this is rooted in the gospel, that all of this is rooted in the transformation that God has, 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 has wrought in you, in your soul, then what you're going to do is you're going to look at this text and you're going to think it's legalism. You're going to look at this text and you're going to think, okay, this is the, these are the things that I need to do in order to reconcile myself to God. But these commands are not a roadmap to reconciliation with God because you can't reconcile yourself to God, right? Christ has accomplished that for us. And so instead, what these words are is they are commands and they're exhortations that are meant to show us how we are to walk as those who have been reconciled to the Lord by His grace. And the character that we must pursue as those who have been raised from spiritual death into life and again these aren't optional things like you don't get to choose this isn't like you're buying a car right and i'm going to go and i'm going to choose this option i'm going to choose that option i don't really need that one but i'd like to have that one and so you know that that's not how this is that's not what this is these are the things these are the characteristics these are the marks of genuine christianity that ought to be present and ought to be growing in our lives that's the idea here okay so think about what he's told us He's told us that by the mercies of God, right, by the gospel, we are to present the whole of our lives as a living sacrifice to God as an act of worship, right? We're to be, we're to refuse to be conformed to the ideas and the ways and the character and the mindset of the world. And instead, we are to be renewed by the transforming of our minds, by the word and by the spirit of God so that we can actually do God's will. Each of us in the body of Christ our members one with another. And we've each been given specific gifts from God to be used not, not just for ourselves and for our own advancement, but for the mutual benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the glory of God, right? Then in verse 9, Paul begins to break it down. He starts talking about these, these certain characteristics, right? This certain manner of life that God expects from us as we become conformed more and more into the image of Christ and the image of our older brother, right? So what's that entail? Well, first thing he says is, look, everybody who's truly a Christian pursues a genuine love for God. And one way that you do that is by abhorring evil and clinging fast to what is good. Then second, he tells us that we're to love one another with brotherly love and brotherly affection. And again, he gives us an illustration of what that looks like. We outdo one another in showing honor to each other, right? Now, here's the thing. When we look at those, right, those aren't like earth-shattering, you know, remarkable, novel ideas for us as Christians, are they? Are they, those commands? They're not. Not really. I mean, nobody gasped out loud when I read, you know, Romans 12, 9, 10, and 11. I didn't hear anybody going, (gasps) Why? Because it's common sense. It's sanctified 
common sense. I mean, we know that we should love the Lord sincerely, right? We know that we ought to strive to love Him even more in heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know that we ought to hate evil and love what's good. We know that we ought to, to, to love our brothers and our sisters in Christ and that in humility we ought to show honor to one another. We know that's true, right? They're a matter of, sanct- of Scripture and of sanctified, informed logic and common sense. And yet we need to hear them. Why? We need to hear them because we still battle, you know, indwelling sin and we can be prone to forgetfulness, right? Right? But none of these marks of being a Christian are out of left field. And likewise, neither should be this exhortation that we read this morning. Although I would say to you that this exhortation is in a lot of ways falling out of fashion in Christianity. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Read that again. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't be lazy. Don't be a slug. Be fervent in your spirit towards the Lord. Excited. And serve Him. Now that's not necessarily a surprising command, but it is necessary, and here's why. Because being zealous and focused in serving the Lord with and for the whole of our lives is a challenge and a battle. I'm going to say this now. Is a challenge and a battle that many professing Christians often find themselves losing. They find themselves losing this. Now, when we all get saved, we're excited about Jesus. When we first get saved, we are thrilled about the fact that we have been found by Almighty God. We are astounded that the sins that were many have been forgiven in the blood of Christ. We are remarkably astonished that God would look upon us and save us, right? I mean, that's the way you should have responded. But what happens to that glow? What happens to it? Well, I'll tell you what, what happens to it. The same thing that happens with infatu- infatuation and, and honeymoon love in a marriage. It begins to fade. It begins to it just, just kind of disappear. Various distractions and discouragements and, 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 you know, the dampening of our affections and disinterest Self-determination, self-focus can at times derail even the most ardent Christians from vibrant and fervent service to the Lord. So, let's consider this exhortation this morning. Let's really think about it. And let's be honest and ask ourselves, man, could it be said of me that I'm zealous and fervent in my heart for the Lord? Or am I zealous and fervent for lesser things? Can I get more excited for my, quote, sports team? Or for my, the new video game release? Or finally paid off that bill? Or the house is clean? Do we get more excited about those things? More fervent in our hearts about those things than we do about the Lord? When Paul writes these divinely inspired words, he really states this divine expectation, doesn't he, in two complementary ways. Don't be slothful, but be fervent in spirit. 
He states it in two complementary ways. In other words, one that's negative and the other one that's positive. The first thing he says is, is don't be slothful in zeal. And again, I already you know, referred to it a little bit, but the idea here is, don't be lazy. Don't get distracted. Don't be apathetic and passive in your life with Christ. Don't be casual. Don't treat your life in Christ casually or, or carelessly. In fact, can I tell you what? The Lord Jesus Christ uses this very same word to describe the servant in the parable that he told, you know, of the talents, to describe that servant who didn't bother to invest his master's money with which he had been entrusted, right? But just buried it in the ground until his master's return, right? He called him a slothful servant. He said in the parable of the lazy servant, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Now that wasn't the truth, of course, right? It was the excuse that the servant offered for his laziness because of the sternness of the master who made it a a practice, apparently, of being unrighteous in the way that he gathered. Again, not true. But then he says, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. In other words, here's the point that's being made. The point is, is that we live our lives unto the Lord, beloved. That we live, we live our lives. Our lives are to be lived before his face and for his praise and for his glory. He has redeemed us for that purpose. And so, we should do so with zeal. And the idea of zeal is just having passion or urgency or eagerness or readiness and and dedication. The idea, beloved, is that there can be no trifling with God, no playing at Christianity, no slothfulness, no laziness in following Christ, but a serious eagerness and purpose in following the Lord. Think about this for a moment. I remember one time I was a little kid. I was out playing with my brothers in the woods, middle of the night. I mean, not middle of the night, but it seemed like. It was like, it was after dark. And it was dark enough where I couldn't see what I was doing. And we were out in the middle of the woods, and they we were playing in some area, and I didn't know where we were. I don't even know how we got there. Right? I mean, we were just playing, we're doing whatever. And I realized in a moment, like, if I had to find my way home... I couldn't do it. And I was scared to death. I mean, I was, I was shaking scared. Like, I started to shake physically, right? And I remember my neighbor, Danny Zimmer, who was like bushcraft extraordinaire guy before that was even popular, right? And he gave me this little flashlight. I mean, like little, you know, little pen light kind of thing. And he said, I want you to shine this on my back. And I'm going to walk. And I want you to follow me. You don't look at anything else. You look at me and that's it. And you follow me and we'll get home. Well, you better believe, man, that when Danny Zimmer started off marching, I was right on his tail. And I didn't look at anything else. And I remember one time he stopped and I ran into his back, you know. And like, but I was terrified. I was like, 
I was so insistent, so focused, so, so, you know, singularly focused, urgent, eager, dedicated, that I kept my, my focus directly on him and he led me, thankfully, to safety. And that's kind of the idea here when we're talking about not being slothful in our zeal. Not taking a break. Not taking some time out. You know, lots of times people do that with Christ. I'm not saying any of you. You can convict yourself. But we take times off, take, take, take time off from the Lord. And we rationalize it. Well, you know, I've been super faithful, super busy, super invested. I just need a break from Jesus. We don't say it like that, but that's what's going on. I see it happen in the summertime, right? You know, you look around throughout the summertime, right? And there are, there are folks that obviously people are gone on vacation every single week, right? But what happens sometimes is this. And I'm not saying you shouldn't take a vacation. We're going to take a vacation. And that's, I'm not saying don't take a vacation. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying lots of times when people take a vacation in the summertime, they take a va- vacation from Jesus. They take a vacation from Christ. They take a vacation from God. They give themselves the, the uh, option to loosen it up a little bit. And I see it. I see it. It happens. I'm going to tell you, this is clockwork. It's every year. Everybody, there's, a, there's this sense in which people fall away some a little bit, you know, in the summer. I'm not going to name any names, but people do it. And then, you know what? Fall gets around. Fall comes. And it's the worst first three months for me in the whole year. Because I've got to deal now with people that are, have become lukewarm toward Christ. And they've got issues going on in their lives. And I'm supposed to just fix it for them. And it happens because somebody decided it was a good idea to give themselves a break spiritually. You deserve a break today. Right? McDonald's started that a long time ago. And I'm telling you, it's, it's deadly. Rather than being apathetic and passive and casual in the way that we live before and for the Lord, instead, Paul says, you need to be fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. It's a Greek word, zeo, that means to bubble up or to boil. It carries the idea of, 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 of a piece of metal that glows with heat. In this context, the idea of fervency before the face of the Lord is to burn with passion for the things of God. It's to be full of energy. It's to be on fire with zeal and desire for God Himself. Paul's warning us against settling into sort of this comfortable, shallow rut in our spiritual lives, right? Right? The idea is that as believers, we're to continuously be hot for the things of the Lord and and be stoking our passion for God and for Christ and for His grace and for the works of the Lord and for obedience and faithfulness to Him and for the calling that He has placed upon us as His people to make His glory known. We fire ourselves up to make the glory of Christ known to the world. This belies another little problem in modern Christianity. It's the reduction of Jesus Christ from master to mascot. What I mean by that is this. You know, when you read through 
the the old guys that are now dead. You know, you read the, the, just the, the, their their testimony of what it was like for them to walk with Christ. They seem almost superhuman to, compared to us. And part of the reason is because that they viewed the mastery and the lordship of Christ in a different way than we do. Quite often. See, when they would talk about Christ as master and they would talk about Christ as Lord, they understood what that made them and that made them the slave of God, right? And they didn't have any right to their own desires and their own wants and their own life and their own anything. They understood that, you know, before Christ, I was a slave to sin and to Satan, And before Christ, what I earned and what I deserve is eternal wrath and judgment from the living God. And God did something quite radical in saving me. He sent His own Son to take on human flesh, to live that life of perfect obedience, to die the death that I deserve. And He purchased me from the slave market of sin. And so I have been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own, right? And right there is the key. I'm no longer my own. So many times, and I'll reference this maybe a little bit later, but so many times what I see in Christianity today are people who have relegated Jesus from being the central figure of their lives, what he, where He ought to be, right? I mean, the one who redeems you, saves your soul, saves your life from hell and corruption, should He not occupy the central place in your life? Shouldn't He? I see Jesus taken from that position and I see him relegated to the place of like maybe even mascots, not right. Maybe it's more like I, I see Jesus taken and he's, it's sort of like, well, he's just sort of the addition to my already thoroughly overstuffed life. And when I get around to honoring him, I'll do it. You know, I do it on Sundays all the time so that people can see how holy I am. But in other cases, maybe I will when it's convenient for me. There's nothing convenient about having a master. You know what I mean? If you're a slave, there's nothing convenient about that. If you exist for the master's purpose, if you exist for the master's plan, if you... Except to say that the mastery of Christ is a gentle and a gracious and a loving mastery, right? What Paul's getting at here is like, man, you know what? Our lives need to be properly oriented. They need to, we need to make sure our lives stay properly oriented. We need to make sure that we're, we're enthralled and we're, we're you know, engaged and energized by the things that really, really, really matter. And that thing is Christ. That person is Christ. In fact, listen, this is not some abstract idea. This is at the very heart of following Christ. You know, it's a common refrain throughout scriptures. For instance, Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians saying this, The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. To the Corinthians, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, 
knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Right? To the Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Shine as lights in the world. Hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And this, brothers, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those, get this now, who are mature, think this way. In other words, if you don't think this way, you're immature. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. To Timothy. To Timothy, he says, As for you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold to, of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now look, I could keep going on and on and cite places in Scripture that speak with this kind of intensity. But the point is this. In our faith in Christ, in our obedience and service to the Lord, the Word of God demands passion. It demands earnest desire. It demands determined dedication. And it demands fervency. You can't be casual about your life in Christ. There's got to be fire. There's got to be passion in our souls for the Lord and in service for Him. And it only makes sense that that would be the case. And why is that? Alexander McLaren says it like this. He says this, The Spirit that has been brought into contact with Christian truth and with the fire of the Holy Spirit, the human spirit, brought into contact with Christian truth and with the fire of the Holy Spirit will naturally have its temperature raised. You think? And will be moved by the warm touch as heat makes water in a pot that's hung above a fire boil. Such emotion produced by the touch of the fiery Spirit of God is what Paul desires for and enjoins on all Christians. For such emotion is the only way by which the diligence, without which no Christian progress will be made, can be kept up. That only makes sense. It only makes sense, doesn't it? Man, if I was dead in my spirit... Right? And before the Spirit of God regenerated my soul and brought me to life, I was dead to God. And my passions were fleshly, and they were sinful, and they were mundane, and they were earthly. And I was doing all that I could to chase after them and satisfy myself, myself in them. I was fervent for those things, but there certainly was no fervency for God. And you know why? It's impossible for there to be fervency for God in any human heart apart from the new birth. You know why? Because you can't be zealous for the God, for, for a God whose condemnation you are under. You can't be zealous for much when you're spiritually. I mean, you can be, you can be zealous for a lot of things when you're spiritually dead, but you can't be zealous for the things of God. You can be zealous for, you know, money and sex. You can be zealous for reputation and religion. You can be zealous for your possessions and for politics. 
You can be zealous for pleasure and, and social movements. You can be, you can be zealous for the pursuit of personal achievement and business competition. You can be zealous for recreation and sports teams and retirement. There's a lot you can be zealous about. Before you know Christ. But all those things are worthless. And they're all passing away with the world. Aren't they? Aren't they? When you get lifted out of spiritual death, when you get lifted out of the deadness of this world by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that all changes, doesn't it? Or it should. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and the abiding Word of God. When you're brought by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to faith in Christ, you no longer, you're no longer what you once were. You've been brought out of darkness and into light. You, you no longer are to be zealous for sinful desires, but to be zealous for the Lord and for your fellowship with Him and for your new life in Christ. You're to be zealous to serve the Lord, not in your own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, And you are not zealous for the Lord as you ought to be. It's not a problem with the Holy Spirit. It's a problem with you. You're quenching Him. You're quenching Him. True zeal in our souls is only possible as we really consciously and intentionally consider and reflect on the treasure that really is our salvation in Christ. One of the reasons that zealousness for Christ wanes is because we get saved and we get into a mentality of, well... Did that, got that, did that, move on. And that is never how. Someone who is redeemed is ever to live. We're not to be casual about what Christ did. Or be content to let the intensity of His salvation fade from our memories. And that's why we must be continually considering and growing in the Lord and our understanding of the gospel. Listen, how much, we need to be thinking about how much we actually owe the Lord Jesus Christ for His life and death for us. When's the last time you really spent time? Not just a fleeting moment. When's the last time you spent time really thinking about that? Or how hopeless we would be apart from His love and grace to save us. Or what He has saved us from. The horror of hell. What we would yet be apart from His sovereign mercy. When's the last time you thought about that? The great blessings that we receive from Him now and and. And what we will receive in the life to come. One of the great barriers to fervency in professing Christians is that they do not consider and they do not know the greatness of salvation in Christ. The Lord of glory gave up the splendor of heaven to endure the abuse of sinners and the wrath of God in order to bring us to glory. Think about it. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For Christ, 
also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, when you think about, really, the Gospel and, 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 and the, the, the depth of the Gospel, that ought to stir us to fervency for the Lord. How can it not? How can it not? If you can hear these things, right? Oh, I've heard this before. I've heard this. It's the gospel. I've heard it so many times. If that's your response, you need to hear it again and believe it. If you can hear these things and they don't stir you in your soul for the Lord Jesus Christ, if it doesn't move you to passionate living for the Lord, then I would ask you this. What can? What can? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord Himself, should make our spirits to burn. The good news that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners should fill our souls with zeal, the wondrous glory that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord should fuel the fire of passion for Christ and His kingdom. But here's the thing. I can say this to you, but I can't stir this in you. I can say this to me. I read this. I can understand those words. But just understanding what those words say doesn't stir me. We'll talk more about that at the end. I would say, beloved, we suffer, and I'm including myself here, not from too much passion and fervency for the Lord, but too little. J.C. Ryle well said this. He said, I want to strike a blow. It's amazing. J.C. Ryle's writing this, right? How many years ago is this? 200? I want to strike a blow at the lazy, easy, sleepy Christianity of these latter days. Which can see no beauty in zeal. And only uses the word zealot as a word of reproach. Zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do His will, and to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. It's a desire which no man feels by nature which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when he is converted, but which some believers feel so much more strongly than others that they alone deserve to be called zealous men. This desire is so strong when it really reigns in a man that it impels him to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to deny himself to any amount, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, to spend himself and be spent, and even to die if only he can please God and honor Christ. Is that your heart? Is that mine? What pursuit for the child of God is greater than this one? What is it? Paul tells us, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. And he says, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Now, why does Paul need to tell us this? It's because we need to hear it. He says, serve the Lord. You know what? Serving the Lord is the greatest privilege in the entire universe. It really is. Serving the Lord is the greatest privilege in the entire universe. Being called out of this world to serve Him is a blessing that is beyond calculation. It's an entirely new and purposeful plane of living. 
It really is. But he has to say directly, serve the Lord. Why? Here's why. Beloved, our lives are not to be about serving ourselves. Serving our own desires. Serving our own purposes. Serving our own fleshly cravings. Serving our own sense of what is best. And then serving the Lord as an add-on or an option to our already, as I mentioned earlier, overstuffed lives. The best of our lives and the best of our energy is to be dedicated to serving the Lord first. And why do I say that? Again, I say that because of the word that Paul uses here for slave. Slave is doulos. Okay? Serve. The word serve here is the word doleo, which means to be enslaved. And that's what we are. It's a benevolent mastery and it's a benevolent lordship, but we're slaves nonetheless, right? Once we were enslaved to sin and Satan, Lord bought us out of the slave market of sin by his blood. We became his own possession. We belong to him now as slaves. By his strong delivering hand, he snatched us out of a life of former servitude to a wicked tyrant that was bent on our destruction to make us his own slaves and to be our master One who is bent on our eternal good, right? You remember what Paul said earlier in this epistle? He said, look, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When you were slaves of sin, you just sinned it up. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and to its end eternal life this is a beneficial slavery isn't it we're to have no other master but christ alone and paul's point is to remind us that we give complete service to christ now supremely and we serve him with zeal and just like we used to have zeal and passion for sin we're to have greater zeal and passion now for righteousness because we have a zeal and a passion for christ We're slaves, and so that everything that we have and all that we are belongs to Him. Listen, I want to disabuse you of of a a commonly cultural-held idea. Your time is not your own. It doesn't belong to you. It is not your own. Whatever time you have left on this earth, you were given by God. Your money, your ability to make it, not your own. Oh, you don't understand. I work hard. So what? Who gave you the ability to work hard? Oh, but I've sacrificed much. Really? Even under blood? Your money's not your own. Your energies, your strength, the physical power and vitality that you have, it's not your own. Where do you think that came from? It came from God. And if He desired to take it away, He could do it what? Just like that. Your family's not your own. It's not your own. To do with as you please. Your career's not your own. Nothing belongs to you. It's all on loan from God. All of it. Your very lives are His. And they're to be invested and spent for His glory and for His purpose. And Paul knows that's not going to be easy. You know, listen, 
when you're zealous for the Lord and like you really think like, okay, I, I really want to earnestly, I want my life to be lived in a manner that really does serve Christ first without trying to hide it from people. I promise you, listen, it's going to get you opposition. When you're fervent and passionate for Christ, when you seek to serve Him with enthusiasm and with all that you are, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face opposition from a world that despises God and considers you a fool. That disparagingly calls you, as J.C. Ryle said earlier, a zealot. Or worse. You might even get opposition in the church from those who think, All this talk about fervency and zeal and serving the Lord first with everything that's in you, that that's just all too serious and all too much and all too radical. But beloved, I've said this before and it bears repeating. Everybody's a slave. Everyone is. Nobody here is autonomous. No one here lives only unto himself. Everybody in this room is a slave. Either you're a slave to sin and Satan, or you're a slave to grace and Christ. And the two are very different. One is a slavery to a hateful and a wretched master. The other, a slavery to a good, a gracious, and a loving master. One is a slavery that leads to death, and the other is a slavery that leads to life. One is a slavery that that exalts sin and wickedness, and the other one that magnifies the grace and the glory of God. The first slavery engenders a hatred for God, and the second, an abiding love for Him. Spurgeon says, love to Christ is the basis, love to Christ is the basis of all true piety, and the intensity of this love will ever be the measure of our zeal for his glory. Let us love him with all our hearts, and then diligent labor and consistent living will be sure to follow. The issue is one of motivation, isn't it? Paul's saying, don't be slothful, don't be lazy, don't be apathetic. Don't be passive towards the Lord. Don't waste your energies on earthly things that are of no eternal benefit. But instead, be fervent and boiling in your passion for Him and for His glory. Serve Him with everything that is in you because that's what you've been redeemed to do. And we need to be eager and deliberate. We need to be passionate and purposeful. We need to be feeling and focused. We've got to be passionate about His supremacy in all things. And that begins with us personally. In our personal lives, the way that we are fervent and seek to serve the Lord are ways like this. Persistently and habitually praying to God and seeking His face. Praying His service to God? Yeah, it is. Searching the Scriptures to know and to love Him more. Pursuing obedience and sanctification in my life. From an earnest heart. Not giving myself an out to do certain things because I've been so good for so long. Or occasional sins. I said this to you before. Listen, when you allow yourself to indulge in occasional sins, all you're doing is training yourself for disobedience. You understand that? I mean, imagine that with your kids. You want them to be obedient. You'd like for them not to run away at night. You'd like them to stay in their bed when you tuck them in. 
Will you be satisfied with obedience that looks like this? Three or four days in a row, they do what you're told. Fifth day rolls around. Well, they've learned, they've earned a break. They've earned an opportunity to just kind of let go. And so they disappear from your house that night. You okay with it? You say, oh, my kids are so obedient. Kids are so faithful. No, you're not. You ought to be worshiping in spirit and truth, seeking to grow, you know, in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, prioritizing times of communion with him above lesser things. I can't, you know, it, it, I'm just going to say this. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just being deliberate here. There's some of y'all that, that you taught, you can, one of the com- continuing refrains that I hear from you is, oh man, I just, I, I miss, I haven't had real time with commun- in communion with Christ. I haven't been able to do that. I haven't, you know, I haven't spent time reading the Bible like I really ought to. I haven't Whose fault is that? You know what I mean? Whose fault is, is that like my fault? Is that something I'm supposed to fix? They want me to get up at, you know, six in the morning and say, hey, I'm just calling to let you know that you ought to spend time right now. Get out of your bed, open your Bible and read it and pray to Jesus. Is that my job? Like, really, I mean that. Prioritize. You know what you do? You prioritize the things that matter to you, don't you? Don't you? We're zealous and we serve the Lord when we repent of sin and pursue righteousness and we live for His praise and for His pleasure. We do it in the church, beloved, and we, when we use the gifts that God's given to us for the benefit of the brothers and sisters in Christ. We do it when, when you know, we edify and strengthen our brothers and sisters, when we serve the Lord by serving others and gladly. When we minister to one another's needs, when we maintain the the unity of the body, when we are of one heart and of one mind and and we love one another, right? And we live zealous and fervent lives for the Lord and we serve Him well in the world in this way. Just consider this with me. Beloved, our desire as the people of God ought to be to put the glory of our Lord and King on display. Isn't that true? And if we're zealous for the Lord, we ought to want others to know of the greatness of our Lord and Master, correct? Well, you remember what Christ's commission was in Matthew chapter 28 before He ascended into heaven. He said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Now, people will say that and go, oh, that's the missionary That's the missionary challenge that Christ gave to missionaries. No, it's not. He gave that to His disciples. And the English kind of betrays what it really says here in the Greek. But when it says, go therefore and make disciples, the idea is like, all right, man, get on a boat and go to Africa and make some disciples. What that really says in Greek is, as you are going... In other words, in your everyday life, you be seeking to make disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the deal, beloved. We live in a world where people are enslaved to Satan and sin, where they're prisoners of godless thinking, where they're captivated and led astray, led astray by the wicked one, and it's not hard to figure out who those people are anymore. And they need to hear the word of the Lord. 
Where are they going to hear the truth if they don't hear it from us? You ever think about that? Like, where are they supposed to hear the gospel? Where are they supposed to hear of the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ? Where are they supposed to hear of the supremacy of Christ over all things if they don't hear it from us? They're not going to hear it in a world that is under the sway of Satan at school. Are they? They're not going to hear it in college. They're not going to hear it on social media or on the news media. They're not going to hear it from our government. They're not going to hear it from watered-down Christianity or false religions. Now, here's the deal, and I am right there with you in this. We sit and we look at the wretched condition of our nation, our society, and we decry that nation. We decry the situation that we're in. We hate the, the, the spiritual stupor that is hanging over this country, right? You're going to hate me when I say this. The issue is not lost people. Pagan's going to peg. I saw a t-shirt like that. Listen, I'm telling you. It's not sin- They're just being sinners. They're doing what sinners do. Right? The problem is the church. Who's been afraid to speak for the glory of Christ. Who's tamped down its zeal. And quieted its fervency. So we won't stick out. If you can't stick out as a Christian in this culture, you're never going to stick out anywhere in any culture ever. Our entire society is under the darkness of false and evil philosophy. We can't withdraw into a corner. We can't allow ourselves to be cowed into silence. We can't say, well, you know, at least I got my brothers and sisters here that are saved and they're going to heaven and God, of course, is glorified in His judgment. And so, you know what else God is glorified in? Saving sinners! Right? Saving sinners. And sinners all get saved, no matter what their background is, they all get saved in the exact same way. They get saved by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Right? Now, we can't regenerate anybody. We can sure give them the Word of God, can't we? Yes, we should rejoice in the fellowship that we have here in Christ. Yes, we ought to celebrate God's grace to us to snatch us out of this cursed world. But that can't make us complacent. And it can't make us self-satisfied. And it can't make us comfortable. We can't satisfy ourselves that God, again, is going to be glorified in the judgment of the wicked. And and He's also going to be glorified in our salvation. And just let that cause us to sit down and be quiet. Time is short. The older I get, I realize how short time is. You know, like, I didn't think about it when I was 25 years old. When I was 25 years old, I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof, right? All of us were at 25. We were immortal, right? Then you get a little age on you. And you realize, my time is not as much as I thought it was, right? And add to that the very real possibility that Christ could return at any moment, 
I mean, really, there's not a whole lot we're waiting for here. We have a very small window of time in order to serve the Lord with fervency and with zeal. And beloved, we need to redouble and rededicate our efforts to doing just that. No more complacency. No more being comfortable. No more being satisfied. No more just being like, oh, well, you know. No, let us proclaim God's law. Let us proclaim His righteousness. Let us proclaim His gospel. Let us spend and be spent for the sake of souls and for the sake of Christ's glory. Let us be faithful and zealous and passionate servants of the Lord for the sake of His glory in this earth. Young men, I'm just going to say this to you guys. Your generation is one. Look, I'm trying to look at all of you all at the same time. So consider this me looking directly in your eyes. And I mean this. Your generation is one that has managed to prolong adolescence and live in the state of suspended animation between childhood and adulthood, it seems like, forever. It's something to be proud of. Right? One study I read says that half of American males between the ages of 18 and 34 play video games every day for at least three hours. And that's, you know, in addition to other worthless endeavors. What a waste of your life. Hear Paul's admonition. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13. Be watchful. Get a clue. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let everything you do be done in love. In other words, be distinct from the world that doesn't prize Christ and be fervent in your serving of Him. Young ladies, your generation is obsessed with appearance. There has never been another generation of women that's ever lived on this earth that is as obs- obsessed with appearance and snapping the perfect selfie and the perfect online presence and skin-deep beauty and... Coupling that with a proud and an abrasive spirit. I can't believe he's saying this. Where's the error? Tell me where I'm wrong. What's it worth? Hear the words of Peter. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Be distinct from a world that doesn't prize Christ. You older people, like my age and up, right? Some of y'all are like, man, I'm looking forward to, to retirement, when I can retire from life. Seriously. I'm just going to retire from life and maybe I'll travel around to all however many, you know, national parks there are and get the smoky there to punch my card and take pictures with whoever. There are people that are looking forward to retirement thinking that you actually retire from serving Christ. 
I don't see that in the Bible. Here's your word, older ladies, older men from Titus. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their old husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Men, as you're approaching your older age, if you're not sound in your faith, and sound in love and steadfast, you need to start seeking that. Ladies, be reverent, not slanderers, not slaves to wine. Teach the younger ladies. Don't just shake your head and say, these young girls, they don't know anything. I'm not directly quoting you, but it's loosely quoting you and you know who you are. Zeal for the Lord matters. It does. And that's Paul's point. There can be no genuine service without zeal for the Lord. Single-hearted, wholehearted zeal and fervency for the Lord that is, is the root of service that is powerful and that is pleasing to Him. We exist to magnify the glory and the supremacy of God and to spread a fervency, right? And a zeal for His holy and, and awesome name. And we can't spread what we don't have. I'm almost done. A couple more points. A couple more thoughts. Remember in Revelation chapter 3, you know, you're reading through Revelation chapter 3 and Jesus is speaking some tough words to a lot of those churches in Revelation and 2 and 3 and all of them get at least a little commendation. They get a little, you know, commending from Jesus. Except one. Remember which one that is? Anybody? Starts with an L, ends with an A. An Aodicea in the middle. The ironic thing about the church in Laodicea is that their zeal and their passion for the Lord had grown tepid, hadn't it? And in a lot of ways, it's amazing how Scripture is like this, but in a lot of ways, Laodicea is very much representative of the modern church, isn't it? Like you read that and you go, yeah, sounds like today. Jesus said this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now I want to make sure we understand this, okay? 
what Jesus is getting at here, he's using, he's using the aqueduct that was in Laodicea as an example here, okay? And, and they would bring water into the city from either a hot spring or a cold spring. But because of the distance that the water had to travel, by the time it would get to the city, it was often lukewarm. And so, therefore, it didn't taste good. It's not the issue about the temperature here, necessarily, as much as it is about the fact that because of their warmness, the fruit of their lives is pitiable. He said, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, he says, Jesus, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is not, by the way, an invitation to salvation. This is an invitation to repentance to the people of God. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. There's no room for lukewarmness. There's no room for being tepid when it comes to Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, take care of giving up your first zeal. Beware of cooling in the least degree. You were hot and earnest once. Be hot and earnest still. And let the fire which once burned within you still animate you. But be ye still men of might and vigor, men who serve the Lord with diligence and with zeal. To do that, we've got to be honest with ourselves. Okay, do a little self-inventory, Right? That's popular these days. Let's do a little self-inventory. Let's ask ourselves a couple serious questions. One, ask yourself and be honest. Me too. Am I fervent in my spirit? Am I serving the Lord with passion and with zeal? Really serving Him with passion and with zeal. Many of us are, but listen, all of us can grow. True? And we should. But maybe others of us need to ask ourselves, really we all do, in what ways has my desire to magnify and serve Christ diminished? And maybe if you're honest, you have to admit that your fire and the passion you once had for Christ has been quenched somewhat. So what do you do about that? What do you do about that? I I'm not I'm not as fervent and I'm not as zealous and I'm not serving Christ like I once did. What do you do about that? How do you handle that? Martin Lloyd Jones offers some excellent counsel. Actually in both instances, both how to grow in zeal for the Lord and how to regain a fervent passion for Christ and his glory. And you know what he does? He likens it to reviving a faltering fire. It makes sense. He says the first thing you've got to do is sweep out the ashes that have choked the flame. 
If you want to have a fire that burns brightly, the first thing you got to do is get rid of the ashes that choke the flame. Those ashes, what are they? Well, they're the hindrances or the distractions or the habitual sins that snuff out the fire of passion for the Lord in your heart. Anything that quenches the ember of the Holy Spirit's working you to bring you to full flame. Sweep it out. Get rid of it. Repent of those things. Then he says, second, you need to make sure that the fire has adequate air. You have to make sure that there's plentiful supply of air for a fire to burn, a current of air. Well, what is that? That air, he says, is prayer. Prayer that, that God would fan into flame what has gone dormant in you. Praying to God until you know that you've prayed and that He's heard you. Praying to God that you inflame your heart once again. Third, then he says you need to add fuel. There's no fire without fuel. And you need long-lasting good fuel, right? The point he's getting at is, is look, you can get a flash of fire from a thimble full of gasoline, right? Right? But does it last? Does it last? No. Like if you just burn up gas, it doesn't, it's not like gas lasts forever. Right? But when you make a fire of wood, right? It burns. You keep adding that fuel of wood and it burns longer and longer. And that's, his, like, that's what he's getting at here. And the real, the real fuel that, that fuels a fire for the Lord is the Word of God. You need to read it and consider and meditate on it. Read and meditate on the gospel, the character and the greatness of God. You've got to feed yourself the fuel that leads to passion for Christ and His glory. And it can't be casual or intermittent. It takes deliberate action and focus. Some people are obsessed with their physical bodies, man. They, they will not miss a workout, buddy. When they go on vacation, they find, they find a gym that is near where they're going to work out. And they'll pay $50 a day if they have to in order to get that workout in. Right? Paul says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then last, he says, you need to continually tend it. You need to tend the fire. Fire left untended soon burns low and it goes out, right? You need to protect that flame by not allowing anything that could dampen or put it out. Beloved, we need to not to be slothful. We cannot be slothful in our zeal. We must be fervent in our spirit. We need to be serving the Lord. And I was thinking... What would be the blessing to this church and to the world if the earnest and compelling focus of every single one of us was to serve the Lord with greater fervency and zeal first above all others? What would that look like? How would that transform not just our church but the world around us? What a difference that would make. 
I long to know what that would be like. I really, I really long to know what that would look like. Now I'll just close these wor- with these words from Andrew Bonar. This is what he said. And he's right on. He said, Revivals begin with God's own people. The Holy Spirit touches their heart anew and gives them new fervor and compassion and zeal, new life and light. And when He has thus come to you, He next goes forth to the valley of dry bones. Oh, what responsibility this lays on the church of God. If you grieve Him away from yourselves or hinder His visit, then the poor perishing world suffers sorely. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I can speak these words and I can preach these words and I can define these words and I can describe these words from Greek and I can do all that. But Father, I cannot create a response to these words. I cannot create a beneficial response to these words, to this command to not be slothful, lazy, apathetic, and casual in our zeal, in our relationship to Christ, but instead to be fervent, to be urgent, to be earnest, to be deliberate in our spirits and to serve You first and above all others. I can't make that a reality in the hearts of Your people, Father, but You can. You can. You can do everything that's impossible with man. And things we haven't even thought of. You are able to work powerfully and mightily in the souls and in the hearts and in the minds of men and women that we can't even begin to fully comprehend. I pray, Lord God, that You would indeed turn the hearts of Your people to these questions this morning. The question, am I... Am I serving the Lord? Am I fervent? Would Christ say, I am fervent and zealous for Him? If I have decreased in my zeal for the Lord, why is that? And what do I need to do to get it back? Father, I pray You'd search our hearts right now. I pray You'd make us to hear these words and respond to them in a way that is honoring in Your sight and that is good for our souls and good for the church and good for this world. So please move in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.